Hello, Kindred Spirits. Welcome back to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Reagan Duffy, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kelly Kerner. Hey, Reagan. Kelly, it's hard to believe it, but all of a sudden, summer seems like it's right around the corner. Are you already making plans for summer? Yes, I am. So by the time our kindred spirits are listening to this, I will have just gotten back from a trip to Mexico with my husband. I have to say I'm really, really looking forward to this trip for two reasons. One, I've never been to this part of Mexico before, and I'm just looking forward to seeing everything that it has to offer and, you know, getting to eat some good food and see some beautiful scenery. But mostly I'm excited because my husband is planning everything. Amazing. I told him I didn't have the bandwidth to put a trip together you know, work has just been too busy. I've had some other things going on that have just taken a little bit too much of my attention. So we talked about the budget. We talked about kind of what we wanted to do. And then he got to work. And a couple of days ago, he came back and he said, we have massages for this day and a sunset dinner cruise on this day and dinner reservations on this day. And I could not be more excited for the trip that he's planned for us. That is incredible. I I love it. (laughs) So I'm feeling very lucky and spoiled already and deeply, deeply looking forward to this trip. And then even more fun is right before we go, my mom is going to come into town for a visit. So I'll get to see her and then bless her. She is going to stay at home and house and dog sit for us while we are gone. Amazing. Go mom. Hi, Casey. (laughs) What about you, friend? Well, we don't have any big trips planned. I feel like summer planning just kind of got away from me. So we are definitely going to do some camping trips or long weekends, maybe local-ish. But I am very excited. My nephew is going to come and stay with us for a week. So my nephew and my daughter, Alice, are the same age. They're both 10, about to be 11, and they are best buddies. The two of them have been playing a long-running, imaginative, role-playing style game together of their own design since they were about six years old. They've built a crazy world together, and it mashes up all their favorite fandoms, and it's evolved based on whatever books the two of them are into. They write letters back and forth in character to each other. When they are together, they are just constantly playing and building on this shared idea. I love how creative they are. That's incredible. It's really wonderful to watch. I love those cousin relationships. And this is actually making me remember when I was Alice's same age, my mom and her sister did a sort of cousin swaps with me and my girl cousins. And we had the best summer ever together. So this is like the perfect age to cement down those fun cousin friendships. Absolutely. So Alice is beyond delighted that she'll get some uninterrupted time with Briar this summer. And it's fun because we'll get to take him to do some of our favorite Los Angeles things. Although I expect that most of the time, the two of them are just going to be in their own world, no matter what we're doing. And I'm looking forward to a, a few extra days with my sister when she drops my nephew off. And then when she comes back to get him and she'll bring my youngest niece with her as well. So we'll get to have some fun time together. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Reagan, that sounds super fun. I'm excited that you're going to get to see so much of your sister and her family. Yes. Well, changing the subject a little bit. Today in our episode, we're going to be talking about Anne as a teacher and her ambitions and her aspirations. So I want to know a little bit about your career aspirations, Kelly. Are you doing what you always thought you'd be doing as a career? Well, sort of. So my dad is a lawyer. 
And I always thought that I wanted to do what he did. The thing is, he has a tremendous passion for the law. Like for him, it is a vocation. It's a labor of love. And so growing up with that message made me want to be a lawyer too, right? And I will say that that message really worked because one of my brothers is also a lawyer. (laughs) But then, you know, in real life, it took a couple of years of law practice to realize that this profession actually isn't the best fit for me. I do have a lot of the skills, you know, I'm bright, creative, a good writer, a good public speaker, but I just don't have that confrontational spirit you need to have to really love law practice in the United States. Fortunately, my current law job isn't litigation focused, so I really do enjoy what I'm doing now. But like Anne, as a kid, I also really wanted to be a writer, and that's still a passion of mine and something that I work on in my spare time. And then this is always funny to me to think about, but when I was like in elementary school, maybe Alice's age and even younger, I really wanted to be a detective when I was a kid. Not like a police officer, right? Not like a homicide detective like that, but like an Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes type detective. (laughs) I think what I really wanted was a job where I just got to sit around and solve puzzles all day. (laughs) That's so funny. I wanted to be a detective for a while too. I think it was because I read so many Nancy Drew books. She was definitely a major role model for my life. For sure. Yes. And also like most kids who love animals, I definitely dabbled in thinking I wanted to be a vet. And while that drew me to one of my favorite books of all time, All Creatures Great and Small, it faded really quickly as a career interest. I have known I wanted to be a social worker since I was about 12 years old. And that hasn't really changed for me. It's My focus has never wavered. The specifics about what kind of job I wanted within the social work field have changed over time, but I've always known that this was the right field for me in some capacity. And it's a really broad field, so I've gotten a chance to do quite a few different things within it. And that I've always been very lucky that way. Okay. I don't even think I knew what a social worker was when I was 12. You want to know what made me want to be a social worker? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a book. Of course. Of course. (laughs) It was a book. It was an old book that I got from the school library. It was called Don't Hurt Lori. I don't know the author's name. And it was about a girl who was being abused by her, physically abused by her mother and eventually kind of ends up escaping And there's a social worker involved sort of at the end. And that was something where it was like this spotlight. And all of a sudden, the experience of reading that book made me realize like kids get hurt or not all kids have good lives. And that doesn't seem fair to me. That doesn't seem right to me. And so that book, there was a social worker in it who, you know, once the abuse was found out, was able to to help Lori and it has a happyish ending. I don't remember a lot about it now. So that kind of clicked on for me. And that was also the time I was starting to babysit. So really connecting with little kids. And all of a sudden it was this idea of, oh, there are kids who don't have good lives. And that's not right. All little kids should get to have good lives. And that essential sense of justice kicked in. And yeah. So, you know, what I've wanted to do within social work has changed over time. Like I don't work in child welfare, but that was the moment where I understood that there was a problem and I understood that there was a career that addressed that problem. And that's what I wanted. Having that clarity of purpose that young is so incredible to me, and I think that's really cool. So our kindred spirit for this episode is Paul Irving. Paul is one of Anne's students. He's a newcomer to Avonlea, although his father grew up in the area. Anne noticed him right away on her first day of teaching. 
The way Anne and Paul seem to see and know each other instantly at a glance without even exchanging a word reminds me of how Anne and childhood seem to instantly decide on kindred spirits. Last season, Reagan and I laughed a little because it seemed like Anne was pretty indiscriminate in selecting her kindred spirits, but here we see that she is still finding her people on instinct and that young Paul does the same thing. It's one of our favorite themes in the Anne series, finding the people who have souls that match yours. Paul is a perceptive child with a big imagination like Anne's. He shares with Anne his rock people, imagined people who live near the beach, not so very different from the fairies and nymphs and dryads that Anne herself imagines. He makes teaching a pleasure for Anne, and he later comes to play a role in reuniting Miss Lavender with her long-lost love, Paul's father. And most importantly, teaching Paul and having Paul as a student helps Anne love her career, even at times when she's not so sure of her abilities or not even sure she likes teaching. For our quote of the episode, here's a little conversation between Paul and Anne as he confides his imaginative thoughts to her one evening as she's visiting. Do you know what I think about the new moon teacher? I think it is a little golden boat full of dreams. And when it tips on a cloud, some of them spill out and fall into your sleep. Exactly, teacher. Oh, you do know. And I think the violets are little snips of the sky that fell down when angels cut out holes for the stars to shine through. And the buttercups are made out of old sunshine. And I think the sweet peas will be butterflies when they go to heaven. So you can see why Anne finds him a kindred spirit. When Paul shares that other people find his ideas very strange, Anne reassures him with, Keep on thinking them, Paul. Someday you are going to be a poet, I believe. So in our story club today, we are continuing to talk about Anne of Avonlea, breaking it down by themes. In our previous episode, we talked about that the driving ideas in all of the Anne books are based on a quote early on from Anne of Green Gables, in which Anne asks Matthew whether he would rather be divinely beautiful, dazzlingly clever, or angelically good. And last episode, we talked about how the idea of goodness is explored in Anne of Avonlea through the theme of community. This week, we want to talk about the idea of cleverness, being dazzlingly clever, and how it's explored here in Anne of Avonlea through the lens of career and academic pursuits. As Anne moves into the working world, teaching at the Avonlea School, she has to figure out how to put her ideals into practice regarding teaching. She starts to explore writing as a pursuit, and she has to make a decision about whether to pursue further education at Redmond College. We start off with Anne preparing for her first day as a teacher of the Avonlea School. Anne, Jane Andrews, and Gilbert Blythe are all starting as new teachers, and they discuss their plans for the upcoming year. Anne is full of ideals, declaring, I'd rather have my pupils love me and look back to me in after years as a real helper than be on the role of honor. She clearly is thinking of the great importance that Miss Stacy played in her life and is modeling herself on the idea of a teacher as an inspiration to her students, helping them achieve their great and true purposes in life. Jane is far more practical and Maud tells us, Jane was not troubled by any aspirations to be an influence for good. She meant to earn her salary fairly, please the trustees, and get her name on the school inspector's roll of honor. Further ambitions? Jane had none. Jane states, she doesn't mind being a little cross to maintain order and has no problem with a little corporal punishment when appropriate. Anne is horrified at the idea of whipping a student and vows never to do so, seemingly loath to have to punish students at all, hoping that her students will listen to her because they love her. Gilbert tries to walk the middle path between these two ideas, wanting to live up to Anne's ideals, but being rather practical at the same time. 
It's so interesting to me that Maud very clearly and very deliberately makes this conversation between Anne Gilbert and Jane not just about teaching philosophy, but about ambition. I'm going to get into this a little more in our Birch Path segment later on, but remember that this book was published in 1909 and it was set in the 1880s. And although most women did work, women were less often seen as having career aspirations and ambition was not really a quality that was nurtured in women or girls. So now we have this scene where Anne and Gilbert are speaking about teaching in a way that's very different from Jane. Jane, who we are told had no further ambitions, will do what village school teachers have always done, versus Anne and Gilbert, who are thinking about progressive pedagogy and applied learning. And that communicates to the reader that Anne and Gilbert are meant for things beyond the village schoolhouse. They have ambition to achieve at a higher level than Jane. Mm-hmm. This reminds me a little bit of the difference between Mr. Phillips and Miss Stacy in. Anne of Green Gables. Mr. Phillips mm. clearly is teaching the old way and has no interest in teaching any other way. He's a rather uninspired teacher. I don't know whether or not Jane is completely uninspired. Miss Stacy is new and progressive. And then we see that she does have ambition and she leaves the Avonlea schoolhouse eventually because she is called up to some of the high schools that are forming in the bigger cities and is moving up in her career. So this is a little bit of that same contrast that's happening between Jane and Gilbert and Anne. We get more of Anne's ideals regarding teaching when she chats with Mr. Harrison about it. Mr. Harrison, of course, is a firm believer in the switch, saying, Mark my words, you'll never manage the young fry unless you keep a rod in pickle for them. The thing is impossible. And he definitely enjoys teasing Anne about her ideals, which makes her cling to them all the more fiercely. We'll see that the process for Anne of how to take her ideals and make them work in real life is part of her journey in this book. Okay, Reagan, so I can never really tell. Is Mr. Harrison poking fun at Anne a little bit here? Or does he truly believe that corporal punishment is the best way to maintain classroom order? Mm, I think... I think it's both. I think at the time, corporal punishment was accepted as a pretty standard way to discipline children, both at home and at school. And let me tell you, as a social worker, that idea is not as far out of fashion as you would think. Obedience was an important attribute in children, and children were supposed to respect and fear their elders. But I think Mr. Harrison is pushing it further to tease Anne He does think she's being unrealistic in her classroom management ideologies, so he's deliberately goading her, too. Anne is trepidatious on the morning of her first day, very much feeling her youth and inexperience as she heads to the school where she was just a student only a few months ago. She had spent all night composing an inspiring speech. Maud tells us, quote, It was a very good speech and had some very fine ideas in it, especially about mutual help and earnest striving after knowledge. But... Once in front of the classroom of students looking at her, Anne forgets it entirely. Poor Anne. Isn't that how so many people feel on their first day of work? Yes, it's such a great section that perfectly captures those first day jitters. Anne is excited about the 10 new students to the Avonlea school, though. Quote, Anne secretly felt more interest in these 10 than in those whose possibilities were already fairly well mapped out to her. To be sure, they might be just as commonplace as the rest, but on the other hand, there might be a genius among them. It was a thrilling idea. This is where you can see how Anne's imagination is fueling her career aspirations. It's not enough just to teach ordinary children. She's looking for a future genius who will change the world and remember his or her teacher as the one who had encouraged that genius to blossom. 
All of this is relatable as someone who is stepping into their career path for the first time. Maybe we aren't all teachers hoping to nurture a genius, but I think lots of people certainly start the first day of their career hoping to do great things. We get a little rundown of the new kids in class, including a sullen Anthony Pye, dashing Anne's hope of a pie-free school, Jacob Donnell and his overdressed sister, Clarice Elmira, sweet Annetta Bell, the three cotton girls who are underfed and apparently have lazy, shiftless parents, Prilly Rogerson, who is very pretty and definitely knows it, tall, clumsy Barbara Shaw, and Paul Irving. Paul Irving is 10 years old, and the instant Anne makes eye contact with him, she knows that he is her little genius. Paul is small for his age, and Anne rhapsodizes about his delicate and refined looks with a solemn and thoughtful expression on his face. The two smile at each other and instantly become fast friends. Here's a little section direct from the book. When Anne's eyes met those of the boy at the front desk facing her own, a queer little thrill went over her as if she had found her genius. She knew this must be Paul Irving and that Mrs. Rachel Lynde had been right for once when she prophesied that he would be unlike the Avonlea children. More than that, Anne realized that he was unlike other children anywhere and that there was a soul subtly akin to her own gazing at her out of the very dark blue eyes that were watching her so intently. She knew Paul was 10, but he looked no more than eight. He had a sober, grave, meditative expression, as if his spirit was much older than his body. But when Anne smiled softly at him, it vanished in a sudden answering smile, which seemed an illumination of his whole being as if some lamp had suddenly kindled into flame inside of him, irradiating him from top to toe. Best of all, it was involuntary, born of no external effort or motive, but simply the outflashing of a hidden personality, rare and fine and sweet. With a quick interchange of smiles, Anne and Paul were fast friends forever before a word had passed between them. So what do we think of this passage? It does seem a little over the top to me. Paul is immediately set up as perfection. And look, as someone who volunteers in her daughter's class weekly, which is full of 10 and 11-year-old boys, this doesn't seem particularly realistic. I think it's such a beautifully written passage. I love that idea of an illumination of his whole being irradiating him from top to toe. My goodness, what a thing to say about someone. But, you know, 10-year-old boys, <laughs> even boys with deep poetical souls like Paul Irving, I think they tend not to show it so much on first meeting. I think a couple of things are going on with Paul. I think on a storytelling level, Maud wanted Anne to be the kind of teacher to a pupil that Miss Stacy was for her. So we need a pupil that Anne will be able to relate to on this emotional and imaginative level. Your average Avonlea kid could never, right, so enter Paul Irving, this fanciful boy who is an instant kindred spirit. And then I also wonder if maybe some of what we perceive to be odd or even affected about Paul might just be like a generational difference. The way he speaks and writes strikes us as odd for a young boy, but it might not have been as far off center in the time it's set as it appears, you know, over a hundred years later. And then recall also that we kind of felt similarly about Davy too. Some of the way his speech is captured in the text struck us as like a little hackneyed. I think that maybe we just have to decide that little boys in Maud's days were a little different than little boys today. Fair enough. The rest of the day passes quickly. And all in all, the students behave rather well. Anne does confiscate some trained crickets from Morley Andrews and disciplines him by standing him on the platform in front of the school for an hour. And Anthony Pye pours water from his slate bottle down Aurelia Clay's neck. Anne keeps him in at recess and talks to him about expecting him to be a gentleman at school. The lecture is, quote, kind and touching, 
but Anthony is unmoved. <laughs> Anne hopes to eventually wins his affections over time, being sure that even a pie has some affections to win. That's some idealism for you right there. Yep. <laughs> As the pupils are dismissed, Anne feels rather discouraged. She's tired. Her head hurts. She's afraid she'll never learn to like teaching. She thinks how terrible it would be to be doing something you didn't like every day for, well, say 40 years. So yeah, highly relatable, Anne. Right. I mean, how many of us have had those days where we wonder, is this really the work we're going to do till we retire? I do think it's telling, though, that Anne feels this way after her first day. I would suggest that this is necessary foreshadowing for Anne. She just isn't going to be a village school teacher for the next 40 years. She simply isn't. She might be well suited for it in some ways, but it's not the kind of soul-fulfilling work that someone of Anne's talent and temperament needs to survive. Anne ends her classroom day with an encounter with Mrs. Donnell, the mother of Jacob and Clarice. Mrs. Donnell is overdressed and pompous, and she's here to complain that according to Clarice, Anne pronounced their last name Donnell rather than Donnell. She's quite concerned. She's also upset that Anne called Jacob Jacob and not Sinclair. And then for those who have been reading this book and maybe haven't heard it pronounced, when you read it, it looks like the child's name is St. Clair, like S-T period, Claire, which is even more ridiculously over the top and pompous, <laughs> right? Like, um, but I think at the time in the 19th century, that name would have been pronounced Sinclair. I could be wrong. If I am kindred spirits, please feel free to reach out and correct me on that. But I'm pretty sure that this one's pronounced Sinclair. Anyway, Jacob told Anne that his name was Jacob. Mrs. Donnell corrects this, saying that, well, technically his name is Jacob, named after his father's uncle at his father's insistence. Mrs. Donnell, of course, wanted to name him Sinclair because it's far more aristocratic, but she went along with Jacob because the uncle was a rich old bachelor and she was hoping the boy would inherit his uncle's money. However, when little Jacob was five years old, the uncle went and got married and now has three boys of his own. Did you ever hear of such ingratitude? Mrs. Donnell asked Anne. So now, of course, Mrs. Donnell insists on Sinclair, despite his father and his own preference for such a vulgar name as Jacob. She's sure Anne will correct these misunderstandings post-haste. She sweeps out and Anne is unsure of whether she should laugh or cry. Truly, I don't know what I would do in that situation. <laughs> oh, no. But reading it, I definitely laughed. Because I love That's that she's so funny. like, how on earth would Anne, she's so angry with Anne that she calls him Jacob, when how else would and no to call him Sinclair. He called himself Jacob. What do you think is happening? <laughs> so funny. What's funny is that the way that Anne ends up handling this is she tells Sinclair, your mom says I have to call you Sinclair, but she won't correct him being called Jacob amongst his friends. So that's, he, he sort of agrees that Anne can call him Sinclair, but everybody else calls him Jacob. She threads the needle there pretty nicely, actually. That's pretty smart on Anne's part. I think she handles it decently. On her way home from this very long first day, <laughs> Paul Irving is waiting for Anne with a bouquet of wildflowers that he had gathered for her because I like you, teacher. Anne is enchanted and as if Paul's words had been a spell of magic, Discouragement and weariness passed from her spirit and hope upswelled in her heart like a dancing fountain. When Marilla inquires about Anne's day, Anne can't quite organize her thoughts and feelings. She says, ask me that a month later and I may be able to tell you. I can't now. I don't know myself. I'm too near it. 
My thoughts feel as if they've been all stirred up until they were thick and muddy. The only thing I feel really sure of having accomplished today is that I taught Cliffy Wright that A is A. He never knew it before. Isn't it something to have started a soul along a path that may end in Shakespeare and Paradise Lost? Anne's idealism is shaken, but she's actually pulling out of it a very real, concrete accomplishment of having taught a child something that they didn't know before. She's still idealistic about it because you kind of have to be to be a good teacher, I think, but she's brought it down into the realm of realism and is understanding that actually that is making a difference. That making a difference doesn't have to be a pie-in-the-sky, lofty sort of thing in order to be important. Ultimately, that's a mindset that is less likely to leave her discouraged and burnt out. Yeah, Anne seems to have like kind of an instinctual awareness that she's only going to be able to get through this if she can celebrate those small wins. Mm -hmm. So whether it's teaching Cliffy Wright that A is A or, you know, knowing that at least she won Paul over when she got that beautiful bouquet of wildflowers, right? Like she, the day hasn't been a total wash. And so as long as she's able to kind of use her inherent optimism, she's going to be able to make it through this. And sure enough, by October, it seems that Anne has her schoolroom relatively well in hand, aside, of course, from Anthony Pye, who, while isn't terribly behaved, is still scornful and disdainful of Anne, which affects the other students. But she's discovering what we all discover when we start to work, that we don't have nearly as much free time as we thought we would once we were done with school. Or if we do, we're too tired to make use of it well. Anne bemoans to Gilbert that by the time she finishes the school day and grading all her students' work, she doesn't have any time or inspiration for her own writing. And what she does write, she's not happy with. Her pretty fancies in her imagination seem stiff and foolish, directly they're written down on white paper with black ink. And that's much the writer's plight, I think. If you are a creative person who has to, you know, work a regular old day job to pay the bills, and I think a lot of creative people are in that trap, you do need to find those stolen moments to practice your craft. And then I know for me, Reagan, I really like to strike when the iron is hot. I'm not one of those people who can just like put in my calendar, oh, sit down and write. And then, you know, as soon as I do that, I feel like I have things to say. Usually what ends up happening is I'll be going about my day and I'll feel some kind of inspiration or something will come to me. And I just have to give myself permission to stop what I'm doing and write instead, even if that is maybe something that I'm quote unquote supposed to be doing, right? Like recognizing that in order to have a creative life, you have to carve out time for for that wherever it pops up. And we see later on in the book that Anne seems to subscribe to a similar philosophy because she literally wrote a story <laughs> while trapped in the remains of the cop sister's chicken coop. <laughs> for his part, Gilbert is finding that he is liking teaching as well, saying that he's, quote, learned more in the weeks I've been teaching the young ideas of white sands than I learned in all the years I went to school myself. Gilbert and Anne compare school stories, primarily about difficult parents, and then the talk turns to college and future plans. They talked for a time of their plans and wishes, gravely, earnestly, hopefully, as youth loves to talk, while the future is yet an untrodden path full of wonderful possibilities. Gilbert has decided to be a doctor and is enthusiastic about wanting to fight disease and pain. He says, I want to do my share of honest, real work in the world, and add a little to the sum of human knowledge that all good men have been accumulating since it began. The folks who lived before me have done so much for me that I want to show my gratitude by doing something for the folks who will live after me. It seems to me that is the only way a fellow can get square with his obligations to the race. And I do believe here that Gilbert means the race of humankind. 
I simply adore that quote. And honestly, Gilbert sums up rather well the reason I went into social work. I felt, I still feel, that it's important to me, who has had such love and support and opportunity throughout my life, that I need to make sure I'm doing my part to make the world a little bit better for others, for folks who aren't always that lucky, and to leave a legacy of a world that's hopefully a little bit better for my having been in it. Reagan, I love that about both you and Gilbert, that really sincere acknowledgement of your good fortune and privileges in life and that deep and earnest desire to extend that to other people. Anne, for her part, aspires to add beauty to life. She tells Gilbert, I don't exactly want to make people know more, though I know that is the noblest ambition, but I'd love to make them have a pleasanter time because of me, to have some little joy or happy thought that would never have existed if I hadn't been born. Gilbert feels, as we all do, that Anne is fulfilling that ambition every day. And being a purveyor of hope and beauty and joy is a deeply important goal in life, sorely needed, and part of the reason that generations of people have loved Anne. But I have to say, I am kind of calling shenanigans on Anne here. She most certainly does not only desire to bring people a little spark of joy. I think that's false modesty. Maybe in this moment she's trying to match Gilbert for his goodness, but I think that we've seen that Anne has bigger dreams and ambitions. We know that she wants to be a great teacher whose students go on to great things. We know she wants to succeed in school herself. We know she wants to see her name in magazines, and she wants to win scholarships and be recognized for her talents. And there is not a thing wrong with any of that. But to contextualize Anne here, in this time period, ambitious was seen as an unfeminine character trait, while making other people happy falls squarely into the realm of the feminine, then as now. So in this scene, why does Anne feel that she needs to subdue her actual ambition or cast it in a more acceptably feminine light? Well, I wonder if some of that is the result of having to squelch some of her ambition in regards to college. At this point, Anne isn't sure if or how she'll ever make it to college and is determined to find meaning and joy right where she is in Avonlea. So I don't think she's letting herself dream bigger or embrace more lofty ambitions out of self-preservation. She's trying to fit her ambitions into an Avonlea-sized box while still staying true to her spirit. Yeah, that rings really true for me, actually, knowing that at this point in the novel, she's not sure if she's going to make it to college or if she's ever going to be able to leave Marilla and the twins. By the middle of the school year, Anne is comfortable as a teacher and finds it very interesting, although she notes that Jane finds it monotonous, Mm -hmm. maybe because Jane punishes her pupils when they make funny speeches. And of course, Anne delights in her students being funny and whimsical. We get a long chapter here of Anne sharing some funny excerpts from various students' school compositions in a letter to her friend Stella. This chapter rather reminds me of like those sections in Reader's Digest that were out of the mouths of babes or something, but it's very sweet. You know, Reagan, I had a full circle moment with this chapter. I know that when I read this book as a kid, I would always skip this chapter. I just didn't get it. Didn't think it was funny. Didn't see the humor. But I really enjoyed reading it as an adult. So I guess it's time to hand over those old copies of Reader's (laughs) Digest. (laughs) Kids say the darndest things. (laughs) The star composition is, of course, Paul's, who writes about his rock people. Paul sees the rock people in the rocks down at the shore, and each has a personality and story and adventures, which Anne is deeply enchanted by. And he includes a story about how he sailed into a sunset. Anne admits that Paul is easily her favorite, but says it doesn't matter because everyone else loves him too. And even though Paul is sweet and fanciful, the other boys like him because he's athletic and good at all the games and holds his own in fight. So, you know, just 
perfect. Again, I find myself so curious about some of Maud's choices when it comes to her characters and gender. Just as it doesn't make Anne any less feminine to be ambitious, it doesn't make Paul less of a boy if he's a dreamer. The fact that Maud goes out of her way to state that Paul can hold his own in a fight really smacks to me of reinforcing old-fashioned gender roles, and it doesn't add anything to Paul's character or to the story. This chapter is followed by another in which Anne has an absolutely terrible teaching day. Anne is in a bad mood to begin with, a toothache having kept her up the night before and still being in pain in the morning. And we all know that when you're in that kind of mood, every little thing feels difficult and irritating and the bad day builds on itself. The fire doesn't want to burn in the morning. She's sharp with her students, being coldly sarcastic when Barbara Shaw is predictably clumsy and spills the coal scuttle. Anne is ashamed of herself for this, but as it happens to many of us, that makes her feel more irritated, not more sympathetic. Anne then catches Sinclair passing a wrapped parcel to another boy in class. She had previously warned the boys about eating and trading these little nut cakes during class time, and so she assumes that this parcel is more little nut cakes. She instructs the hapless Joseph to toss the parcel into the fire, and while he stutters and tries to explain, Anne is remorseless and stern, and so Joseph does as she orders and pitches the little package into the fire. Turns out it's full of firecrackers that Sinclair's dad had purchased for Joe's dad. The package explodes with a roar and sparklers spin around the room. The kids, of course, go into hysterics. Crilly Rogerson even faints. It's an hour before the smoke clears and everyone calms down. Anne's bad mood is in no way lightened by this unfortunate interlude. In fact, it's made worse because she knows all her students and their families will laugh about this later. Her sense of humor has completely deserted her. And her flaw of pride and temper is rearing its ugly head again, despite all her maturity. The capper on this terrible day comes after lunchtime when Anthony Pye hides a mouse in Anne's desk drawer and it scampers out over her hand when she reaches for the chalk. Of course. Anne screams, as would I. And Anthony laughs directly at her, insolent and mocking. Anne is done. When Anthony admits it was him and showing no trace of remorse or shame, Anne does what she has vowed she would never do. She uses the pointer to punish Anthony. And I couldn't decide here if she smacked his palms or his rear end. And Maud tells us that while it was not a particularly severe whipping, especially not in Anthony Pye's experience, he does wince and tears come to his eyes. Oh, jeez. This finally breaks Anne's mood. She's instantly ashamed and repentant, and her anger disappears, leaving her at the mercy of her conscience. Anne feels even worse because she thinks Jane will claim triumph and Mr. Harrison will laugh at how her ideals were too lofty. And worse, she feels like she could never win Anthony Pye over to her now. She somehow makes it through the day without crying, but weeps once home. So long and stormily does she cry that she alarms Marilla. Mm. Anne confesses all of it to Marilla, who comforts her tenderly and reminds her that everyone makes mistakes and bad days where everything go wrong happen to everyone. Anne and Marilla call it a Jonah day. I think modern readers would call it a terrible, awful, no good, very bad day. Mm -hmm. Anne sighs that Anthony will never like her now. and She knows she shouldn't care, but... I can't help it. I want everybody to love me, and it hurts me so when anybody doesn't. Marilla uses Anne's own words and reminds her that tomorrow is coming with no mistakes in it yet. Oh, Anne, I feel you. <laughs> Fortunately, the next morning brings fresh snow and a fresh perspective. And as Anne bumps into Anthony Pye on the way to school, he tips his hat to her and carries her books for her all the way to school. And they exchange real smiles, indicating that Anthony now likes her and respects her. 
We finish out this chapter with Mrs. Lynde telling Anne that Anthony Pye does indeed respect her now. Mrs. Lynde says, he says he believes you are some good after all, even if you are a girl. Says that whipping you gave him was just as good as a man's. <laughs> oh, you know. oh, the patriarchy, <laughs> it hurts us all, Anthony. <laughs> Anne, of course, feels deeply conflicted by this, being sure that teaching from a place of kindness and understanding is still the right thing to do, and that surely whipping a student should not result in a better relationship. Mrs. Lynn states that the pies are an exception to every known rule, that's what. And Jane and Mr. Harrison both, of course, rub it in that they were right. So, you know, this chapter doesn't particularly age well, and nope. certainly we know that physical punishment does not make kids feel safe at home or at school. But we will have to chalk this one up to the time period and take the general theme out of it without praising the specifics. Yeah, I don't love the casual attitude to corporal punishment here. I understand it was a different time and we understood a lot less about child development, but punishing someone who has less power and authority than you have, whether it's a child or any other vulnerable being, punishing someone using physical pain is never the right approach. Right. Well, this chapter is where you can see that Anne's idealism has taken a serious hit, mm -hmm. but it's making room for her to build a more nuanced and realistic ethos for her professional life. She's also having that universal experience of realizing that just because you're a grown-up doesn't mean you never make mistakes or let your worst self show up sometimes. These are important lessons for Anne, who lives in an idealistic world and sometimes holds herself to ideals and standards that are impossible to reach. And... You know, then from there, the next week year of school and Anne's professional life, it's the end of the school year. All the parents, except Mr. Harmon Andrews, who thinks that she should use the strap as punishment more often, are satisfied with Anne, so she is renewed for the next year as well. And she looks forward to a well-earned vacation. She confides in Mrs. Allen her disappointment in herself for not being the perfect teacher she had hoped to be. I've come so far short in so many things. I haven't done what I meant to do when I began to teach last fall. I haven't lived up to my ideals. None of us ever do, said Mrs. Allen with a sigh. But then, Anne, you know what Lowell says, not failure, but low aim is crime. We must have ideals and try to live up to them, even if we never quite succeed. Life would be a sorry business without them. With them, it's grand and great. Hold fast to your ideals, Anne. I shall try. But I have had to let go of most of my theories, said Anne, laughing a little. I had the most beautiful set of theories you ever knew when I started out as a school ma'am, that every one of them has failed me at some pinch or another. We see you, Anne. She's learning that ideals and theories have to be flexible, not rigid and ironclad. I always think of ideals more like a North Star, something to help guide you. And if you know where you are in relation to it, then you can figure out where you are and where you want to go. Yeah, I think that's really wise, Reagan. And another word I'd use here maybe is values. If you know what you value, whether it's a professional context or personal context, whatever, that is what's going to help you make the best decisions for the moment. So then it's less about having these like tightly held theories, right? Like all of Anne's perfect little theories about how something should work and more about just how to stay aligned with your values. Mrs. Allen has wise words for Anne that echo Marilla's after Anne's terrible day. And she says, we all make mistakes, dear, so just put it behind you. We should regret our mistakes and learn from them, but never carry them forward into the future with us. Oh, so much wisdom. We also hear in Anne's convo with Mrs. Allen that Anne and Gilbert are studying together in a correspondence course, currently working on Virgil. Anne hasn't given up the dream of college, but doesn't see a direct path there, with Marilla's eyes being stabilized, but not completely better, and the twins needing a lot of bringing up still. 
Reagan, this is bringing up something that's really interesting to me. Here is Anne. We were just talking about how she is sort of taking herself to task for not having enough time and energy at the end of the day to do creative pursuits. And we're neglecting the fact that not only is she teaching all day, then coming home and grading papers and doing all this sort of outside of school work to prepare for the next day. She's also doing correspondence courses with Gilbert for college. I mean, and then the fact that she wants to like write, you know, <laughs> great works of literature on top of this. Again, it may be great to have ideals, but she has really set herself up for a lot to live up to. Yeah. Don't forget all the work it must take to raise Davy. That's yeah. right. She's also raising these twins with Marilla. My goodness. Oh, plus doing the AVIS. And you just have too many things going on. Right. <laughs> We're going to have to teach Anne the power of no. Right. Just you've got to you have to call some of this. Well, Mrs. Allen hopes that Anne will go to college. But if that doesn't happen, she reminds her that Quote, we make our own lives wherever we are. After all, college can only help us do it more easily. They are broad or narrow according to what we put into them, not what we get out. Life is rich and full here, everywhere. If we can only learn how to open our hearts to its richness and fullness. You can see why Anne values Mrs. Allen's friendship so much. There's so much wisdom and support for Anne here. Encouragement and guidance, but giving Anne lots of room to figure it out for herself, whatever it is that she needs, that she believes. We get to see a little glimpse of Anne's writing aspirations during her summer vacation. When she is stuck in the cop sister's chicken coop roof, having inadvisedly climbed on it to peek in their window, she gets that sudden rush of inspiration for a little written sketch of flowers talking to each other. Like I was saying earlier, you cannot let those flashes of inspiration pass you by. So Anne scribbles it out on some scrounged wrapping paper while she's stuck, and Diana thinks it's very good and urges it to send it into a magazine. I love how supportive Diana is. Anne demurs, saying that there's no plot and it's just a silly little thing she wrote for herself. But we see that writer in Anne finding inspiration in the unlikeliest of places and unlikeliest of moments, although not believing yet that others will value her writing. After a lovely summer full of golden days and light adventures, the new year begins, with Anne far more confident than she had been. Quote, school opened and Anne returned to her work with fewer theories, but considerably more experience. And I know this is a process in social work as well. It's why in California, you have to have two years of supervised experience as a therapist before you can take your licensing exam. You have to see how the theories you learned in school actually work in the real world with real people, adjusting them, learning from mistakes, building your ability to know which theory to apply when, and remembering that an individual is more important than strict adherence to any one theory. A supervisor is supposed to guide you on this journey of building experience because it's a hard journey. And poor Anne didn't have anyone to help mentor her through it. She just had to figure it out on her own. Yeah, I have to say there is not much of a sort of like training program for these village school teachers. It's like they go to Queen's Academy for a year and then armed with all these like theories and knowledge are just let loose on a bunch of children. Yep. Sink or swim. Yeah, well, no wonder also that the quality of teachers varied so wildly, right? Having Miss Stacy on one end of the axis and Mr. Phillips on another. Yeah. So this year, Davy and Dora are now old enough to go to school. But aside from a few of their antics with other children, we actually hear very little about Anne's second year of teaching. So she must be feeling far more confident. The next important thing that happens for Anne in terms of her career is that Marilla offers Anne a chance to go to Redmond. Since there is now a little additional income between the twins' trust from their uncle and Mrs. Lind moving in and paying rent, Marilla can afford for Anne to go. 
And Mrs. Lynde's presence gives Marilla the support for Green Gables' day-to-day management and the raising of the twins, Davy being slightly less of a holy terror now. Marilla wants Anne to take this opportunity. Anne has been content, even very happy these last two years at Green Gables, but Marilla knows that someone of Anne's intelligence and ambition should get the chance to grow and be challenged in a way that small-town Avonlea and its one-room schoolhouse can't do for her. Anne is dumbstruck. She wasn't expecting this opportunity, at least right at the moment, and perhaps had worked hard in the last two years to not yearn for college. Anne is always good at finding beauty and joy right where she is, and she learned a lot of valuable lessons right there in Avonlea that perhaps prepared her better for college than she would have been had she gone when she initially planned to do. She can let herself dream of this bigger future, of more learning and being part of a larger learning community, now that it's possible. But she's also wise enough to know that she's still leaving something behind, something really precious. And that's that work of growth, I think. In order to make room for something new, you have to let something go. As Anne says, I've put out a lot of little roots these two years, and when I'm pulled up, they're going to hurt a great deal. But it's best to go, I think. And as Marilla says, there's no reason why I shouldn't. I must get out my ambitions and dust them. Anne's students are all devastated by the news that she won't be returning the following year. Diana is sure she will be very lonely without Anne, and a little afraid that Anne will prefer all her new college friends, and come to think of Diana as a quaint country girl. Anne reassures Diana that no one will ever replace Diana and her affections, sharing that their friendship has meant the world to her, changing Anne's life from one where she was starved and lonely to one where it's full of warmth and love and affection. And then Diana also vows that if she ever has a daughter, she's going to name her Anne. On the last day of school, Anne reflects on her teaching experience. She thinks, For two years, she had worked earnestly and faithfully, making many mistakes and learning from them. She had had her reward. She had taught her scholars something, but she felt that they had taught her much more. Lessons of tenderness, self-control, innocent wisdom, lore of childish hearts. Perhaps she had succeeded in inspiring any wonderful ambitions in her pupils, but she had taught them more by her own sweet personality than by all her careful precepts, that it was good and necessary in the years that were before them to live their lives finely and graciously, holding fast to truth and courtesy and kindness, keeping aloof from all that savored of falsehood and meanness and vulgarity. That's really lovely. As the summer and the book wind down and the anticipation of college in the fall begins, Mr. Harrison mentions to Anne that she'll be headed off to school in two weeks' time, to which Anne replies, Yes, I'm going. I'm very glad with my head and very sorry with my heart. And I think that's often how we feel about big changes, even ones much anticipated and longed for. You have an idea in your head of what is waiting for you, but it's still abstract. It doesn't have form or substance yet, but you know what you're leaving behind and you have loved those things. When Mr. Harrison mentions the honors that Anne might try to win at Redmond, she responds, I may try for one or two of them, but I don't care so much for things like that as I did two years ago. What I want to get out of my college course is some knowledge of the best way of living life and doing the most and best with it. I want to learn to understand and help other people and myself. Mr. Harrison agrees with the sentiment and opines that knowledge won't do you much harm, I reckon. Anne has matured since her time at Queen's Academy in which winning honors and beating Gilbert was about her pride and about proving that she was valuable and worthy to herself, to Marilla and Matthew, to Gilbert and Miss Stacy. Now Anne knows in her heart of hearts that she is loved and valued and worthy. Matthew's death, two years of teaching, 
Her rapprochement and friendship with Gilbert have helped her recontextualize the virtue of being dazzlingly clever. Anne isn't trying to prove anything anymore. She wants to pursue more learning for its own sake and in the pursuit of living a good life. We love a personal growth moment. I really think that Anne's character arc in this book, as she contemplates her career and her education, is so beautifully done. Having overcome so much of that prideful, stubborn chip on her shoulder from the first book, she now gets this opportunity to really examine her life and evaluate what she wants, not what someone else wants for her, not what she thinks she has to prove to be worthy. And then she gets to go after her own desires. For our Birch Path segment, we want to talk about some other famous literary ladies who pursued wild ambitions. So pretty much since we began this project, Reagan and I have wanted to talk about Little Women and its place in the girlhood literary canon alongside Anne of Green Gables. This episode seemed like a great place to do it, as one thing that the March sisters of Little Women share with Anne Shirley is ambition. Louisa May Alcott published Little Women on September 30th, 1868. Like Anne of Green Gables, it was an immediate hit, and Alcott authored a sequel right away. In short order, Alcott gave the world Little Women, Little Men, and Joe's Boys, three books that taken together tell the fascinating arc of Joe March's ambitions. I'm going to assume that our listeners are familiar with Little Women, <laughs> since I think that the Venn diagram of fans of Anna Green Gable and fans of Little Women is a circle. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of overlap. Yep. <laughs> but just to briefly summarize, Little Women is the story of the March sisters, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, who live in Concord, Massachusetts with their mother during the Civil War in the United States. Their father is off at war, serving as a chaplain in the Union Army. The Marches are not well off, but they are reasonably comfortable, and their class is contrasted by two families they come into contact with during the books, a very poor family called the Hummels and a very wealthy family called the Lawrences. Like in the Anne books, a lot of the plot of Little Women is simply the day-to-day -day events in the lives of the sisters, and as the girls grow up, their differences inform the kind of women they become. The kind, dutiful eldest daughter Meg marries, the vibrant and creative Joe goes to the city to become a writer, the vain and artistic Amy travels to Europe, where she mellows some with maturity and becomes a painter. And sadly, the tender and gentle Beth dies from an infection related to scarlet fever. Last season, we talked a lot about how many interesting women there are in Anne's life, and how many examples of womanhood there are for Anne and for the reader. And I think that Little Women also does this. By giving us four girls, each very different, Little Women gives the reader four types of girlhood. Now, I would never say that there are only four ways to be a girl, but we need to think about the time when this book was published. There just weren't that many options. Girls were either dutiful and sweet and aspired to be wives and mothers, or they were cautionary tales, heedless and wicked. So Little Women gave readers more options, and in particular gave the world Joe March, who represents a particular path that girls at this time would not have seen many examples of. Joe is a tomboy. She eschews feminine characteristics, and she wants the independence that comes with being able to make her own way in the world. Joe's ambitions to become a writer made her unique not only in 1868, but for years to come, and she inspired generations of women writers. Ursula K. Le Guin said about Joe's ambitions, I don't know where else I or many other girls like me, in my generation or my mother's or my daughter's, were to find this model, this validation. Joe March is wildly ambitious. I love this Joe quote particularly. I want to do something splendid. 
Something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I don't know what, but I'm on the watch for it and I mean to astonish you all someday. Imagine being a girl in 1868 or 1878 or 1908 and reading a young girl say, I mean to astonish you all someday. Your life might be very predictable and planned, but now you know that you can hope for something better. And that is what Joe is giving to the reader. Let me ask you a question, Kelly. Do you think Little Women would have the staying power that it does without Joe? That if she was a different kind of character, that if she wasn't so full of ambition and verve and spark, that this book would still be such a touchstone for so many people? I really don't know. Um, I think it might have been a very popular book for a long time. But I wonder if, like many other books of its era, it might have been popular at its time, but sort of fallen out of favor as the years passed. You know, there are plenty of authors who were writing at this time and were writing sort of more traditional girls um, who had maybe more traditional, more aligned with, you know, typical patriarchal ideals. And we don't read those books as much anymore, right? We don't find characters as interesting, as compelling. The fact that Alcott was writing Joe March over 150 years ago is really, really remarkable. She reads so contemporary even today. I mean, more so even than Anne, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's really just such an iconoclastic figure in in children's literature. So yeah, I do think that the power of Joe is part of the reason that Little Women is so enduring. Mm-hmm. Joe's ambition is born in part from practicality and wanting to be able to provide for herself without being dependent on a husband or family as her mother was. And the reality is, is that true financial independence was not available to most women of her time. But beyond the desire for independence, Joe also loves to write, and she feels compelled to share her stories in the world. In this way, she reminds me a lot of Anne, who also has stories to tell. And even beyond a desire to write for financial freedom and artistic success, Joe states in the book that she desires, quote, to be independent and earn the praise of those she loved, which are the dearest wishes of her heart. Again, like Anne, Joe wants to work and succeed professionally, but she wants to do it so she can make her family proud. Also like Anne, Joe eventually works as a teacher, allowing her to experience financial stability. Joe, quote, takes great comfort in the knowledge that she could supply her own wants and need ask no one for a penny. And although Joe does marry, we'll save whether she married the right guy for a later conversation. I know it's controversial. It's her work, not her marriage, that gives her the financial independence that she desires. Her ambition is ultimately realized through her own intelligence and her own passion. And then, you know what? Joe is not the only March girl who is ambitious. Everyone always overlooks my controversial fave, Amy. <laughs> Aww, I love that you love Amy so much. <laughs> like Joe, Amy also wants to be financially secure. And while she's a little bit more open to marrying to get there, she also wants to earn a living by making and selling her art. Again, this is really unique for literature of the time. Amy dares to say I want over and over again in this book. As a young girl, she seems selfish and frivolous, but as she grows up, that determination to go after her desires serves her well. Joe and Amy both don't hesitate to give voice to their desires. At a time when women were encouraged to be submissive and humble and never speak their desires out loud, here are these young girls declaring their hunger and wants to the world. Joe says of her dreams near the beginning of the novel, 
I'd have a stable full of Arabian steeds, rooms piled high with books, and I'd write out of a magic inkstand. I want to do something splendid before I go into my castle, something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I think I shall write books and get rich and famous. That would suit me, so that is my favorite dream. And in addition, the character of Amy intensely desires to be a famous artist, even going off to France in the hopes of pursuing her dream. She tells Lori in a now famous quote, I want to be great or nothing. Ugh, I love these girls. <laughs> great or nothing. They are not pulling any punches. And you know what? I really think that Louisa May Alcott paved the way for Maud by writing such daring, ambitious women who weren't afraid to give voice to their desires. Anne may not be as brash as Joe or as stubborn as Amy, but when she has her sight set on a goal, she's unwavering in her tenacity. And again, at a time when women were supposed to want nothing more than to be wives and mothers, there was this spark of rebellion between the pages of these seemingly sweet and wholesome books. Joe and Amy and Anne want more than what is prescribed. They want financial and artistic freedom, independence, and recognition from the people in their worlds and beyond. And all these decades later, I think they've all seen those desires realized because they've inspired so many women to seek out their own ambitions. They have left a legacy that has lived on. Yes. Which is what both Anne and Joe want in their own different ways. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad we finally got to talk about Joe. Me too. So steering us back towards winding up this episode. I think for our puffed sleeved section today, and that is for some of you listeners who may not remember, that's our little section where we talk about something a little frivolous or that didn't quite fit in with the rest of our theme today, but that we quite enjoyed something a little extra. And I think for both of us, we kind of picked out the same puffed sleeve moment today from the kids say the darndest things section. From Anne's teaching life. This one is from both of us. <laughs> so I'm going to read this quote directly straight through just the way that Anne is writing it to Stella and see if you guys don't laugh along with us. <laughs> I think the most difficult thing in teaching, as well as the most interesting, is to get the children to tell you their real thoughts about things. One stormy day last week, I gathered them around me at dinner hour and tried to get them to talk to me just as if I were one of themselves. I asked them to tell me the things they most wanted. Some of the answers were commonplace enough. Dolls, ponies, and skates. Others were decidedly original. Hester Bolter wanted to wear her Sunday dress every day and eat in the sitting room. Hannah Bell wanted to be good without having to take any trouble about it. <laughs> me too, Hannah. Honestly. Really? Marjorie White, age 10, wanted to be a widow. Question why? She gravely said that if you weren't married, people called you an old maid. And if you were, your husband bossed you. But if you were a widow, there'd be no danger of either. Okay, Marjorie White knows what she's talking about. Marjorie sees the patriarchy for what it is, and she's just going around it. Yep. The most remarkable wish was Sally Bell's. She wanted a honeymoon. I asked her if she knew what it was, and she said she thought it was an extra nice kind of bicycle because her cousin in Montreal went on a honeymoon when he was married, and he always had the very latest in bicycles. The very latest in bicycles. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't know. I don't know. But I think Marjorie White was way ahead of her time. Honestly. Oh, yeah, she really was. She had it all planned out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. I love it. Well, Reagan, were you inspired by anything you want to share with our kindred spirits? 
Yeah. For my inspired by this episode, I was thinking about another classic story of growing up and developing maturity. I took my daughter to see Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, the movie last weekend. Of course, it's based on the classic middle grade book by Judy Bloom. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. The movie is beautifully done, beautifully yeah. acted. It was so nostalgic for me. And even though it's set in 1970, so much of what Margaret is going through resonated with my daughter. Although uh -huh. she had a lot, she, Alice had a lot to say about the fact that Margaret should just speak up for herself, but very it was wise, so very wise, yeah. Alice. It was so fun to watch it together. So if you have a tween in your life, watch it together. But even if you don't, just go see it anyway. Oh, I really want to. I mean, that book was such a touchstone for us growing up. I can't wait to see it on screen. Yes, I really think you could see the love and the care they put in it mm -hmm. into doing it justice. It was really well done. So for my inspired by, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with celebrity memoirs written by women. So I'm going to share some of my favorites. Now, this might seem a little bit out of left field, but I assure you it isn't. Because the thing I love about a good celebrity memoir is that we think we know celebrities. We think we understand how they got where they are. But then when you actually read their stories, it becomes clear that their success comes from a ton of true ambition, deliberation, hard work. I mean, the things that have to fall into place in order to like achieve this level of fame and notoriety, it's... It's not small. These people are incredibly hardworking and deliberative. I love it. I love it when people just unabashedly go for what they want. And seeing that ambition on full display and celebrated for what it is, it's just, it's enthralling. It's inspiring. Truly, I love a celebrity memoir. Also, they are usually super juicy, super fun and breezy, just easy, good reads. So with that as my setup, I'll say that my gold standard for a celebrity memoir are Gabrielle Union's two books. The first one is called We're Going to Need More Wine. And the second one is You Got Anything Stronger? You know, it's her brand. <laughs> Union is such a great storyteller. One thing that she does that I think is really amazing is she will always connect her personal experiences to larger systemic issues, right? So she might be talking about some anecdote on the set of Bring It On, but then she'll connect it to a larger problem with systemic racism in the industry right? She's so smart and she's so aware of sort of her situation in the world. She's incredibly candid about her experiences and she's funny and also heartbreaking all at the same time. A few other celebrity memoirs that I would highly recommend are Just Kids by Patti Smith, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl by Carrie Brownstein of Slater Kinney, Open Book by Jessica Simpson. Do not sleep on that one. That is so juicy and good. And then my most recent obsession, and I swear to you all kindred spirits, I stayed up till like one in the morning finishing this one, is Paris the Memoir by Paris Hilton. <laughs> you wouldn't think so, but this book is an absolutely unflinching gut punch of a memoir, and it totally challenges your preconceptions of who you think Paris Hilton is. Okay, I'm just going to add all of these to my list. I say load up your summer reading list. These are the kinds of books you want to have on the beach, but I think all of the ones I listed also have a pretty deep core of people who actually do have something to say. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kindred Spirits. Please join us next time when we talk about Anne and her journey toward romance. Follow, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts so that other kindred spirits can find us. And we would love it if you would follow us on Instagram for more conversation and community at kindredspirits.bookclub or on Twitter at KSBC Pod. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye, kindred spirits. <laughs> <laughs>